Good morning, Impact. How's everybody today? I guarantee you're not, even though five of you were enthused there, I guarantee you're not as up as I am because the Lord gave me a word this week that I'm really excited about giving to you. And now don't take that to mean that I'm not excited every week. I am every week, but this one seems extra special because I think if you get this, then you'll learn to dream again. And you won't just dream again because some of you are going, that's not my problem. I dream of great big things. They don't happen. Well, you'll learn to see it through. You'll learn to see it happen. Ever since I was a little kid, I read a lot of fantasy novels, science fiction fantasy. Anybody like those kind of things? I know we've taken this poll before, uh, and it seems like it was less that time. Uh, but I love fantasy novels, and I started thinking, why am I so attracted to those things? Why do I like them? Well, because I think there's so much hardship in this life and on this earth, and there's so many things that, because of sin and because of the fall, that are bland and sort of, of um, sepia or black and white and, and not as colorful as they would have been or should have been in the Garden of Eden. Because of sin, things have sort of just gotten flat and maybe even a little boring and not adventuresome. So when you read these books, there's always these wonders, wonderful worlds that are colorful and vivid and alive and adventures and even magic and, and things like that. You're supposed to grow out of these things, but I never do. And some of you are going, oh, we have a very immature pastor. How many of you went to see The Hobbit? Hands, please. All right, so we have a lot of immature people, okay? It's not just me. Um, but you go and you look for places that deliver on that kind of beauty today, and you can't find it. I, if you've been to Hawaii, maybe that gives you hints. Maybe it's kind of close. Maybe you can get glimpses, but I, th I still think it's a, a long way off. I, I don't think that's it. Then what I personally think is the closest to it, the closest to it is the underworld, uh, the underwater world of the underworld, the underwater world of giant reefs and colorful fish and sea creatures. That's why I love the scuba dive. Scuba divers, anybody? Three. That's why you guys are bland. You need to get under the ocean and see that. There's a very, very colorful, another world down there. It's full of vivid colors, ancient wonders. Want to know something weird by cool, but, but cool? The um, weird by cool, weird by being cool, cool by being weird, something. You know when the most vivid colors come out under the ocean? At night. At night. Which I think is crazy, isn't it? Who's going to see the vivid colors at night? Why would that happen at night? How do you know, Pastor Rob? I night dive. It's even more fun. Well, then how do you know what you see at night? Well, I'm not stupid. I don't night dive without a light. They have underworld, underworld underwater lights that light up, you know, sometimes like 50 feet if the, if the visibility is there. And, you, and all these colors come out. It's like all these plants. They bloom at night, these coral, these creatures that you don't see during the day. And I look at that, I just laugh. When I went night diving the first time, I just laughed at all this. I was down by the sand, you know, with a group of like 10 people the night diving, and out comes like a 10-foot manta ray. Just my, all the sun, all the sun, all the sand kind of. Uh, blew away as he moved and he just rose out of that thing and I swam with him and some of you are going didn't you watch like the crocodile guy or whatever that did don't you know you don't do that now I do yeah but back then I just swam with the thing it did not whip its tail into me or anything like that it was but it's amazing and I look at that and go God who's gonna see that why would you do that I just feel like God's saying well because I can because I can it's for me it's the grandeur that I make. It's not always for everybody else. And he makes it look so easy. Here's the deal for a beautiful reef. If you go and you dive the Great Barrier Reef or down in Belize or anything like that, a current, some sunlight, and a reef. A current, some sunlight, and a reef. And it attracts fish, grows fish, keeps the fish healthy, and just keeps that thing going. Think it's really easy? Anybody think that's easy? It looks easy, doesn't it? So you go, why are you so hyper, Pastor? I don't know. I am on day 20 of my Daniel fast, so I have no Red Bull or anything. I'm hyper in the Lord. It's even better. It really is. It's even better. 
Well, if you think it's easy, try setting up a saltwater aquarium without getting a second job to support your habit. Just try it. Try to do it. It's cheaper to maintain a yacht with a full crew, I think, than setting up a saltwater aquarium. It's incredibly expensive, and it's somewhat comical. I say somewhat because I tried to have a saltwater aquarium. Uh, my brother tried one. My uncle tried one. My wife's currently doing it, and I say it's somewhat comical because it's somewhat depressing, actually, because you can pour obscene amounts of money into a saltwater tank trying to keep it, just to keep the things alive, the coral and the fish. And then I'm reminded about God, a reef, some sunlight and a current. And he makes it look so easy. My wife currently has one in her doctor's office that the patients can enjoy. And um, there is coral care that she has to uh, come up with. There, is, there are anemic anemones that she has to take care of. They've all died. All the anemones have died. By the way, all the coral, coral's dead except the ugly coral. All the bright green purple coral has died. And so she's got a bone to pick with the fish doctor that comes by like once a month um, for many visits because the fish are going south usually for no apparent reason in a tank. Um, you ever remember that commercial with the medical alert commercial? This will help you. Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. Remember that thing with that lady there? Well, if fish could talk, that's all they would say. If they had a little medical thing, help, I've listed, I've fallen, I can't get up. They're constantly sick in our aquariums. They're constantly ill. You can spend all kinds of money. There are updated technological filters and things that you can get, but if one little thing goes out of balance, the whole thing gets destroyed. My brother had tanks. He was so into this growing up, he actually kept a journal. About. Now, that's a journal, not a diary, okay? I just want to be straight about that, ladies, okay? If it's a guy's book, it's a... It's a journal because diaries would, well, that would be feminine. So he kept a journal, and one day I had a friend over. Now, it's not my friend's fault, sort of, but my brother's little journal was open. I mean, I guess he forgot to close it, and, and we noticed there was like one sentence on it. That's it. And my friend thought it was, and he probably shouldn't have gone over there, but he did. He looked at the thing, and all it said was this. It's Tuesday. Another fish died today. Bad day. Oh, couldn't help but turn another page because that's kind of entertaining. Thursday, woke up this morning to two more dead fish. Feel depressed. <laughs> it's kind of funny, a little bit. Then one final thing before we shut it because he was coming in. Friday evening, I came home tonight to a ghost tank. <laughs> no life, just empty caves and blowing bubbles. Don't know how much more of this I can take. I'm thinking he's the... Well, listen, it probably didn't cheer him up that... His friend and my friend and me were practically doubled over laughing. To this day, you can't bring that up with my brother. It's a sort of a unwritten aficionado's code in saltwater tanks. Never make fun of another man's tank. We all know what people put into it. But gang, why is it so hard to keep life in a tank and beauty in a tank when you go out to the ocean and you see just a current, some sunlight, and waves and that, I mean God makes it look so easy but it's so hard for us now please get this told that for a reason that's how it is with a great dream I promise you that is exactly how it is with a great dream or a great vision when God gives us a dream it's like he's crediting our spiritual account with something extremely valuable something beautiful but it's raw and it's undeveloped. So he's going to give you something. He's going to give you a dream. And your dream's different than mine. But you've got that, especially if you are a believer. You have that. Credited to your spiritual account. Given to your heart. But it's raw. It's foggy. It's blurry a little bit. So watch this. It's up to us to develop it. Listen, I'm going to say this a few times. And the beatings will continue until you get it because it's so important. But you've got to cultivate what God has credited. 
I learned that so much this week. You, you absolutely have to. He gave it to you. But we have got to cultivate what God has credited. Now, turn in your Bibles to the first book, Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. We're going to continue with the, our story of the dreamer, Joseph. I don't know if I'm ever going to get used to this when I say turn in your Bibles. In our world today, you see people just flicking their iPhones or flicking their iPads. I don't hear pages like I used to. I want to hear pages. I long for that. I'm old-fashioned when it comes to that. Genesis 37, 12 to 14. Now, his brothers went to pasture. Let me just tell you where we were last week. Joseph's favored by his father. His father's a poor father. He shows partiality. He really shouldn't do that. He makes it hard on Joseph, but he favors him, gives him presents. He's got 11 brothers who can't stand him because he's favored. Joseph hasn't done anything wrong, but his father has. And so his brothers hate him, and Joseph seems to be a bit clueless about this. He's got great dreams and great potential, but he doesn't realize that talking about it has bothered his brother. So here we pick up. Now his brothers went to pasture the father's flock near Shechem and Israel said, that's Jacob's other name, Israel. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. And this is what's beautiful. One of the many things about Joseph, there's never a mention of sin in Joseph's life. He's an obedient, uh, honoring son. And when his father said, I want to send you to them, he just says, here I am. Just like your kids, parents. Right? When you say take out the trash, isn't that what they say? Here I am, Father. Here I am, Mother. I, I hear words, but those aren't the words. Those aren't the ones that are among. All right, here I am. And he said to him, go now and see if it's well with your brothers. Okay, can I translate? Go spy on them. Those lazy, good-for-nothing brothers of yours, will you? And with the flock. And then come back and bring me word. Tattletale, snitch on them. Now, skip down to verse 17. We'll go through 17 through 19. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar. And things are going to get ugly, gang. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Wow, how's it gone this far south? They see him far off and they can tell it's him because he's got this many compartment, this, this coat with many, you know, like a vest and an overcoat and all this stuff. And it's multicolored, it's beautiful and it's rich. And they can see him far off. Not many people have a coat like that. So they see him far off and they want to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. So if you have any doubts as to why they want to kill him, don't have any doubts anymore. They just said it, right? People, gang, when you share your big dreams with them, they're not all going to be excited. They're just not. When God gives you a big dream, the bigger the dream, the more you're bursting with excitement just to tell to people. I would say use caution. I would say use caution. Joseph's dreams were bigger than most. They're huge, and he just wants to tell his brothers about them all the time. The problem is his brothers are usually serving him in these dreams. So it's just not a good idea, really. When I was in seminary many, many moons ago, Dallas Theological Seminary, I longed to apply what I was learning. Listen, I did not go to Dallas Theological Seminary to get a piece of paper so I could put it in a frame and hang it on a wall. I have that. I haven't even hung it yet. Still sitting in my office. I, I mean, that's great. I went to learn. I went to learn God's word so that I could apply it and live it out and use this newfound knowledge in the real world. In short, I, I wanted to be a minister. So sometimes I was even impatient to get out there and start ministering. And during my time at Dallas Theological Seminary, so it's a four-year deal with Greek and Hebrew and all this, it's really long. I, I got impatient and about just a year into it. I thought, what can I do with the knowledge that I'm learning God's word? How can I apply it? And so I started working with Young Life. Well, I don't think they really wanted me there at first. So they stuck me in a Young Life as a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant that had been dead and dormant, basically, for about 10 years. It was where Young Life started, right around the seminary there. There were, uh, there were about nine kids, 
uh, still currently even interested that would show up at a meeting um, at one school where it used to be a couple of them in that area. And, you know, as I said before, I'm white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And so was about 4% of the school. So they go, I think it's a good idea to throw you in there. I think they were trying to get rid of me. And I'm okay with that. I think they thought, this guy's so excited. He's got a dream to see kids come in droves to the Lord. But you know what? He's a little reckless. He doesn't know what he's doing. Stick him over there with Thomas Jefferson High School in North Dallas. They'll eat him alive. We'll probably find his body somewhere on the side of the road. And we'll be done with him. Pretty sure that was their plan. I can't prove it to this day, but I'm pretty sure that was it. Instead of that, within a few weeks, those nine kids turned into about 40 kids, and within a year, it turned into 100 kids, and within three years, we added six schools, and there were 400 kids, and tons of kids got saved, and I saw a dream come to life. But gang, it didn't happen just because I thought, oh, there, there should be a lot of kids getting saved. There should be a great harvest. It didn't happen because God said, you know what? You're right. I have the same idea as you, so just sit there, and it'll happen. No, he credited that dream to my heart. I'm absolutely positive of it. And then he said, now go cultivate it. Now go cultivate it. This happened again years later when I told a group of eight people, including me and my wife, in my family room, many moons ago, like 15 years ago, how church could be different and that God was going to raise up a great church that would really worship him and be more of a movement than a church from the humble beginnings of eight people sitting in that, in that family. I can still see a couple of groups sitting in there, and I had been doing a little Bible study with them, but some of them were kind of folding their eyes, and I thought I saw an eye roller a little bit, like, come on. I mean, when you tell eight people that there are going to be thousands, and thousands will get saved and baptized, eight people have a hard time getting over the hurdle of a few thousand minus eight and that gap. But guess what? It happened. It happened. Here's what I want to tell you. When you tell people your dreams, you inevitably get one of two reactions. So be ready for that. You're going to get one of two reactions, and one is a lot bigger than the other. You're either going to get eye-rolling and sighs or outright defiance, or you're going to get smiles and wide-eyed wonder. That group's a lot smaller, but watch for that group when you tell your dream. Watch for the group that's smiling and leaning in and thinking this could happen, because that's the group that God will use. That's the group that God will use. So both dreams came true, just as God said they would, but neither dream was the ultimate dream that God put on my heart regarding his church in this area and the impact that a group of sold out people really could have if they leaned in and pressed into God and really believed in for big things. And you know why I don't think it's happened yet? Because I believe that final dream is reserved for you guys at Impact Church. Now, the lights are such that I can't see you that well up here. I hope I'm not seeing eye rolling and arms folded. I hope I'm seeing people leaning because this is a whole lot more than eight people. And I've seen them do it with eight people. But it's a leap, gang. It's a stretch from where we're at to believe God can do great big things like this. Well, we're going to, I would call it a pre-dream, okay? Let's call that these pre-dreams before the dream. Joseph had a lot of pre-dreams in his life. Before he realized the fulfillment of the actual dream that God put on his heart, there was a series of small victories. And seemingly, here's the dream coming, right, God, right? And then no. So small victories and then seemingly devastating defeats. Listen, to see the dream fulfilled, we need to cultivate what God has credited. That's three times now. To see the dream fulfilled, you've got to cultivate what God has credited. Listen, I know everybody gets a dream, especially when you're born again. I know that God puts something on your heart to do. But you and I, all, I mean, you guys, we all know that we look around, we don't see a lot of people living it, right? We don't see a lot of people living it. So you go, well, well if everybody has it, what gives? What happened? Well, most people play it safe. 
Most people tuck that dream away. Most dreams that, all dreams that come from God are big. So they're a little bit intimidating. Would, would that be fair to say? So we look at it and we go, well, people might make fun of that, God. People might laugh. I mean, you think I'm gonna, if he gives you a dream that you'll be able to financially support a ministry of his and do things worldwide, and you look around and you go, well, I don't really wanna say that. That's embarrassing if I say that. People will think, so let, you just do it. Why don't you let me win a small lottery, maybe a million, just for starters, and that'll be my fleece and my clue that this dream is really from you. And God goes, no, how about I use the little faith that this guy next to you has and bypass you? Wow. I mean, I've got people out there, God says, that, are, that will dream and will cultivate with just simple faith. I don't need to keep proving things to them, so I'll move to them. There's few of them. That's why we don't see as many people living out their dream. Now, difficulties should never derail great dreamers, and they really don't. Difficulties never derail great dreamers, but problems paralyze daydreamers. Big difference. When problems come, they paralyze daydreamers. So I'm going to give you a couple things this week and a few things next week um, that we can learn from Joseph's life about seeing the dream come true. So if you are note takers, get these down. Here's the first one, a significant vision from God. That is the first thing you gotta have. And I already told you everybody's got it. But if you wanna do great big things and you need a significant vision from God, not a little. My vision from God is that I need to see great things in general happen in a sort of great way generally. That's nebulous. Listen, God doesn't get as much glory from your general nebulous things as he does from your specific dreams. Because when you dream big and you, you outline it and he gives you something specific that you can't do, then you're kind of off the hook. As long as you will work with him, all glory goes to him and he loves that. We saw this last week. Listen, God literally gave Joseph a dream. Literally, a dream. He fell asleep and he had this dream. And, and it became a great vision. And listen, Joseph could have just sat on it, Right? I mean, probably in regards to his brothers, he maybe should have just sat on it in some ways. I mean, he could have just tucked it away in the back of his mind and thought to himself, well, if it's really from God, uh, really from heaven, then it can't help but happen. I mean, God's sovereign. So whether I really actively pursue this or not, since I dreamt this thing and it was supernatural, I'll just sit back and play it safe. And it'll happen anyways because God said it would happen. God is sovereign. I find this a lot with dueling theologies. A lot of churches say, well, I'm reformed. I follow, follow reformed theology. Other churches will say, I'm dispensation and all that. You know, here's what I am. I'm obedient. Amen. I follow the obedient theology. Thank you, Nicole. <laughs> I'm going to hire more Nicoles if I have to, to put them in this church to get some feedback. Okay, because here's what it is. Sometimes if you go too far with reformed theology, you take it too far and God is sovereign, God is sovereign, then you translate it this way in your head. God is sovereign, therefore I can be lazy. God is sovereign, therefore I can be lazy. God is sovereign, so whoever's going to get saved will just get saved anyway. Why should I tell them whether I tell them or not they're going to get saved? Because God told you to. God told you to. Out of obedience. So he could have just sat back. Doesn't matter what I do. Why put the risk out there and risk ridicule? I'll just tuck it away and play it safe. Well, we already learned what's wrong with that, friends. You got to cultivate what God has credited. That's what's wrong with that. God expects you to do much with what he has given. To whom much is given, much is expected. Now, if you'll quickly turn in your Bibles to Matthew, kind of put, put a finger or a book note or something there in Genesis, and turn to Matthew 25. You want to know how Jesus feels about just sitting on your dream? I don't know any better place than this. Matthew 25 tells a parable of the talents. I'm just going to kind of go over that if you want to follow. I think it starts in verse 14. The parable of the talents, uh, and by the way, talents was a form of money. That's like the parable of the Benjamins, okay? 
of the $100 bills. Only what's cool about this, I mean, it's not talking about gifts and abilities and our, our talents that we have, but it could be. And actually, that would work just fine. God gives you ability. God gives you stuff. God gives you finances. God gives you resources. God gives you gifts and talents. And, here's, and what you do with them is everything. So a wealthy landowner went on a trip, and he was going to be gone a while. And the gist of it is that he's pulled three what he thought were pretty faithful servants aside, and he said, I want you to take over. I want you to handle this, okay? And to one of them, he gave five talents. Now, a talent is a pretty big uh, amount of money. He gave five. So it's a, it's a lot of money that he gave him. It's not like a dollar. It's not even like a Benjamin. It's like thousands of dollars. So he's like giving him $50,000. So he gave him five talents. To another one, he gave two talents. And to the third one, he just gave one talent. Still a lot of money, but one talent. And he went away on this trip. And the parable goes, Jesus goes on to tell about the parable. And he says, immediately, the one who gave five talents and the one who gave two talents went out and started investing and working and cultivating what their master had credited to them. They started working the thing. Because they thought, when my master comes back, I really want to impress him. I live for him. But the third one thought, when my master comes back, I don't want to impress him. Uh, I, I just don't want to be depressed by him being mad at me. So listen, if I invest, I could lose it. If I start working, who knows? Somebody might mug me or something as I transfer my money to the bank. So listen, I'm going to find a, a little box, and I'm going to dig a hole, and I'm going to put my talent in there and bury it where nobody can find it. When the master comes back, at least I'll have that guaranteed. Seems kind of safe. I mean, it seems like he's being a good steward of that because at least it's safe and sound. Well, the story goes on to tell that the master gets back and he rewarded the two investors. He compensated the two who had cultivated the talents with even more talents. He gave to the one who had five, ten. The one who had two, two more. So he doubled their stuff. But what did he do with the third one who buried it? He came back and said, I knew you were a cruel man, so I buried it, but I got it and it's safe. He threw the lazy, hole-digging, treasure-burying, dream-stuffing dude out on his ear. And that's putting it nicely. Scripture says he will be tossed out into other darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's still too nice. Do you know what Jesus was saying in the parable? If I give you a dream, that means I saved you. And I gave you a dream and I called you for a mission. If you go and bury it, then you're probably not saved. Why would anybody do that with a dream from the living God? So this guy is cast into hell. So how does God feel about us stuffing our dreams? Pretty serious. Because when God credits into our spiritual account a dream or a vision, he expects us to cultivate it. He absolutely expects us to partner with him. It's a privilege to partner with the living God, isn't it? It's a privilege to partner with the living God. So let's keep going with Joseph's story. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the pit. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him when our father asked, and we'll see what will become of his dreams then. It's the dreams again, right, gang? It's the dreams again. They can't stand to hear these dreams. Why does it bother them so much? Well, first of all, because they're subservient in the dreams, but they're not doing anything with their life anyway. I mean, they're goof-offs. They're completely goofing off. Well, well Joseph works hard and is very obedient, and it seems like they don't want to make anything... Because if they're going to choose to do that with their life, they don't want to see anybody else succeed. People that don't dream or people that have buried their dream are usually jealous. Watch out. Joseph is still a ways off, Scripture says, but they can see his brightly colored robe and they know it's him. And I thought about that and I thought, yeah, they know it's him. And they can recognize physical things about Joseph, no doubt. And they hate that robe and I get it. But listen, they know it's him from afar off. There's that dreamer. They know it's him, but they don't really know him. Have you noticed that? 
They didn't give him a chance. They know what he looks like and they know what he represents and they know why he hate him and they know he's favored. But you get the idea that they really don't know their brother. They really don't know him at all. He just represents the object of their jealousy and hatred. Now, I told you, I told you last week, if you guys were with us, that Joseph is the first beautiful, vivid picture of the coming Messiah in, in Scripture. There are so many things in his life that parallel Jesus. And now we're going to enter some of those things because I want you guys to get this. In the same way, before they really knew him, the Jewish leaders had launched their evil plot to destroy Jesus. You notice that the Pharisees never got to know Jesus. They never sat down. And the ones who did moved over to his side. Nicodemus talked to them, got to know him. Joseph of Arimathea talked to them, got to know him, and they became believers. But the others sat back and they put a wall up and said, I don't like the way you're doing things. And they labeled them and they never really knew them. They just started launching their evil plots before they knew him. Verse 21, but when Reuben, his brother Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let's not take his life. Don't cheer for Reuben just yet. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Well, to me, to get somebody in a pit, you're probably gonna have to lay a hand on him. Probably gonna have to beat him a little bit, make him compliant. And then when you toss him in a pit, depending on how deep it is, we know he couldn't get out. It's probably deep enough. Ouch. When you fall. They didn't lower him in there. They tossed him in there. Said that he, but here's what he was thinking. It's a little bit of good in Reuben. That he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So three cheers for Reuben, right? Hip, hip. Not so fast. Why does he want to restore him to the father? So he can get in on some of this favoritism. That's it. He doesn't have a good heart. He just thinks if I save him, then it'll be Joseph and me and the other 10 can go rot. So he thinks this favoritism, this way to be loved by the Father is something you earn. He couldn't be more far off. Couldn't be more far off. He's a man who wavers back and forth, the older brother. Reuben doesn't exactly know what to do in this highly volatile situation, but he's the oldest brother, and so people are looking at him. You know who he reminds me of? Pontius Pilate, doesn't he? I mean, Pontius Pilate just didn't know what to do with Jesus. He's weighing everything out and he's trying to compromise, but he never did the right thing. Maybe putting Joseph in a pit will satisfy my brothers, Reuben hoped. So too, hoping to satisfy the cry of the Jews, the brothers of Jesus, Pilate ordered him scourged. Do you remember that? Okay, we will not put him to death. We'll, we'll beat him. We'll take him out. We'll give him lashes and we'll do all that. Then surely I'll bring him back and present him and they'll see that I've, I take him serious. I, I had the guy beat, but I'm not gonna put him to death because something about him creeps me out. Something about him worries me. Something about him makes me fear for my life. What if he really is? So he's conflicted, but he doesn't have enough guts to do what's right. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. Who else had a seamless robe stripped from him. Jesus did. By the way, this is one of those weeks in church where if you answer Jesus every time, you'll be right. You'll be correct. So answer back and work with me. Are we good with that? Because since Nicole spoke out, I haven't heard a word. I haven't heard anything and it's okay. Verse 24, and they took him and threw him into a pit and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. The empty pit, gang, is a picture, I promise you, of the tomb in which Jesus was buried. For the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a religious leader who came to Jesus' side, had never had a body in it. Previously empty pit. You know, to wonder, what's that for? 
Verse 25, then they sat down to eat and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and their camels bearing down on them with gum and balm and myrrh. So they come and they see all this and they're trying to think about what to do. And they were carrying it to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Oh, what a nice guy. What profit is it? No, not what right thing is this? How wrong is it if we do this? What profit is it? Listen, we can hurt him really bad, assure that he's pretty much gonna die and get beaten and and pummeled for years to come, then die, plus we can make a little something out of it. About as bad as it comes. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand not be upon him, for after all, he is our brother of our own flesh. I love this guy. What a good guy Judah is, right? We're gonna find out in a moment he's the worst of all the brothers. He's horrible. Then Midianites, so I guess they couldn't decide. So these caravans, this is the, the big trade route. People are coming down. Next, Midianite traders pass by. And they drew Joseph up out of the well and lifted him up out of the pit. Let's sell Joseph to these Gentiles, said Judah. We don't want to be responsible for his blood. Kind of reminds me again of somebody else, doesn't it? I can see nothing wrong with this man. How about I give you Barabbas instead? And they yelled out, crucify him. And Pilate was, was at an impasse. He wasn't a godly man, so he couldn't at that point do what was right. So he got a basin with water and began washing his hands and said, I'm innocent. Personally, I don't have anything to do with this. I tried to be neutral here. But Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. Pilate tried to play it neutral. And Jesus counted him with the wicked ones. Counted him with the wicked ones. And sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Who else was sold for silver? You're good. You guys are good. You know the answer. That's incorrect. No, that's actually right. It was Jesus. Not saying yet. And what about Joseph all this time? Because when I hear people teach on this, I don't hear them say much about Joseph. He's alive, obviously. He's in the pit. And he's crying out. Can you imagine the pain of Joseph who has seen some hostility and probably heard whispering and gossip from his brothers, but he never imagined this. So he can hear him talking up there, right? I don't know what I'm going to do with him. I'd say just kill him. I can't stand the little brat. Kill him? Do you think he's probably going down there going, well, I hope the kill him side doesn't win. Any other votes up there? How about sell me? No, I, I got an idea. Give me my coat back. I won't say a thing. Send me... No, he's probably crying out, brothers, we're brothers. Don't do this thing. Stop. Think about it for a moment. He's panicking. He's given every argument he's got. I guarantee he won't shut up unless they bring him up and pop him in the face and say, shut up or we'll beat you to death. This isn't a pretty light situation. This is bad. But I guarantee tears are coming. He's crying out. He's a 17-year-old kid. And they're full-grown men. He's shocked. Now, perhaps some of you are sitting there going, why? Why is he shocked? He's always sharing his dreams. He should know this is coming. It's not really a real secret. His brothers aren't that fond of him. True gang, but they had never resorted to anything other than whispering and dirty looks and arms folded and maybe some eye rolling. And this has created, I believe, in Joseph and his father, Jacob, what psychologists refer to today as a normalcy bias. Anybody ever heard of that? It's a fascinating thing, and you see it all the time. It's a normalcy bias. It refers to a mental state people enter when facing a potential disaster and its possible effects. And when the disaster is so abnormal 
they miss it all together. And, and people see this like in, in plane crashes when people get out of a plane crash and then everybody else perishes. They interviewed a woman of a plane crash that happened a couple of years ago. She's an elderly lady. And she said her husband grabbed her and just slapped her and just got a hold of her and said, let's go, let's get off this plane. And on her way out, she was going on a trip with some friends. She saw some of her friends, seemingly not that hurt, sitting there, you know, just looking at, at their seatbelts and, and looking around, frozen. They weren't moving. Eventually the plane you know, burst into flames and, and just about everybody was killed. Only like six or seven people got out, but she said 100 could have got out. 150 could have got out. They froze because what was happening, they were waiting for instruction. They were waiting for a lot of things. It just seemed so abnormal that they froze. When I returned from a month-long sabbatical, the church I formerly pastored was having the best year, one of the best years they'd ever had. More people have been saved that previous Christmas and Easter than ever before. We had greater higher stewardship and generosity than at any other time in the history of the church. And the future looked bright. In fact, it looked like the dream God put on my heart was beginning to really blossom and turn. I thought for sure that's what God was doing. Instead, I was about to get spiritually and emotionally pounded and thrown into the pit. Now watch this. It's what you do right there that determines if the dream's ever going to happen. What you do right there. Joseph's in a pit. And it's not going to get better before his dream is realized. It's going to get worse. Oh, there's going to be some pre-dreams. There's going to be some little things, but it's going to get worse because God's trying to do something in Joseph to get him ready for something huge. Not something a little big, something huge. Listen, it happens all the time through Scripture. These are not unique stories. It's every great man or woman's story in scripture. When the young teenager David was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the king of Israel, he didn't ascend to the throne. Instead, he darted to the desert. You ever notice that? You are king. I'm the prophet. No one can argue. Bring me oil. I anoint him. I declare him. I'll say the words. You are the king of Israel. What's next? Better take off because Saul's after you. Grab your things. Start hiding. You got a long adventure. A lot of training now as the next Navy SEAL. Of That's it. That's it. Eight, nine years of running. What? Listen to some of the Psalms that David wrote during that dream-shattered time of his life. Psalm 18, four through six. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. He's a little dramatic, isn't he? No, this is, he's running for his life. The current king doesn't like that he's been anointed. So he'll sometimes come to, to hear this accomplished harpist, David, play because there's an evil spirit that's troubling Saul. And I want to make a long story short. David could play the harp and give him some peace. But eventually he gets so jealous, he liked to grab spears and play target practice with David's head twice. And he's a pretty good, accurate thrower of spears. He'd throw them and David would duck and it would lodge in the wall. It's kind of a tough way to live, isn't it? When the king wants you dead. In my distress, I, distress I, I called out to you, God. I cried to you for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. There's also Psalm 59, Psalm 63, Psalm 70, Psalm 142. I can go on and on and on. All of these psalms were written when David had darted for the desert and was running from Saul. And it looked like anything else was happening other than his dream coming true. I mean, you can say anything, okay, then you're going to become a mighty warrior that, that launches guerrilla warfare from the desert. I, I don't know about this king stuff. Maybe that's what God's doing, David. 
No, he said I'd be king. Well, it, let's just face it. Look at the facts. Doesn't look like it, does it? But David clung to the, to, clung to the credit in his heart that God had put there. You will be king. My prophet anointed you. You will be king. Got a little bit of cultivation to do, David. Got a little bit of work to do, David. How much? About nine years. But then you're going to be a great king. Some of you going, well, I've gone through a, several years of a hardship. Hang in there. Well, I've gone, I lost my job. I, I mean, there was a dream God gave me. And, hang in there. Hang in there. He's still cultivating. And in fact, here's, here's another thing you could do. We talked about the Daniel fast last week. Press into God fast. Maybe you'll get your answer about what he needs to see from you sooner. There are ways to turbocharge it. There are ways to speed it up a little bit. But if there's chiseling to be done, let him do it. Let him do it. So you got all these psalms, all these different psalms when he's running. But they all have one thing in common. David doesn't stay discouraged. He moves immediately to praising and worshiping God. He knows, gang, like we should too as believers, he knows the key to fueling the dream is to move from depression to devotion. The key to fueling the dream is to move from depression to devotion. That means when you're depressed and you're real down, start praising God. Well, I don't really feel like singing. Well, I don't feel like hearing half of you sing. Sometimes. But God loves it when we make a joyful noise. And if God wants to hear you no matter what it is, Make yourself get out of it. Help someone else. Praise God. And that'll, that'll fuel your dream again. Gang, bottom line is, it's what we do right at that moment when it seems like the dream is gone that determines whether your God-given dream comes true or turns into a lifelong nightmare. Honestly, this is the most important moment of your life if you want to dream again. These valleys. Remember that old saying? Some of you are like, if, if life's a bowl of cherries, why am I always in the pits? Probably because you always think of everything like the pits. My wife calls that stinking thinking. That's stinking thinking. The dream God credited to your heart isn't dead. It just needs to be cultivated. Just got to be cultivated. I think it's dead, Pastor. I disagree with you. I don't care. It's dead. Let me prove that you're wrong and I'm right. Everybody, two fingers. Boy Scout, two fingers. Got them? Hold them up right now. Not an hour from now. Now. Place them right there on your neck. Feel anything? No. Then you, God's done with you because you're dead. All right? I don't know how you pulled that off because you are dead. But if you feel a pulse, God's not done because you're not dead. Got it? That, that's how I know. It's not rocket science. How do you know God still has something good for me to do, something great for me to do? Because he hasn't taken you home. He left you here. So you're on mission. I'm a little distracted because so many of you didn't have a pulse. I guess that's another. All right. Listen, you've, you've got to cultivate what God has created. You've got to enrich what God has endorsed. Isn't, isn't this true of anything great? Isn't it? I'm checking. I listed a couple. For athletes, well, what's the difference between great ones that see their dream come true? Practice. They have a gift and an ability, but they've got to practice. Working and cultivating the soil for farmers. You can't just, I've got a great farm out here. Do you ever do anything? No, I hope that the birds drop the seed or something. You never thought of cultivating it and putting seed out there? No, but it's a dream of mine to do that. It's not going to happen. You've got to cultivate it. Disciplining and training our kids as parents. Your kids are a gift for you for a time to raise. Are you raising them in, in God and His Spirit? 
or, or I don't care what it is. If you're a stockbroker, carefully monitoring and studying portfolios of your stocks. If you just sit there and go, I got a lot of good ones. Do you know when to buy or sell? I never look at them. How do your clients feel about it? I don't know. I never call them. And you still have a job? Nope. Lost it. Got fired. It's easy to understand. You didn't cultivate it. Anything takes that. Listen, a dream at first is raw and nebulous. It's underdeveloped. So you and I, we got to determine to improve what God invests in us, just like the faithful servants that Jesus talked about who improved on the talents they were given by God. Otherwise, we don't just get to go home with a mere door prize. Some of you go, well, I'm not going to cultivate it. I'm not going to take a risk, but I'm still saved. And I'll get home with a door praise and I'll feel really good. Otherwise, we don't just get a thanks for showing up, better luck next time. We get the anger of the living God. How did he feel about the one who buried the talent? Remember, he cast them out. Burying your gifts and your talents and shirking your mission is not an option as a believer. God can do great things through one person. And God can turn a movement out of a small church easily. But you've got to cultivate it, gang. We've got to partner with him. We've got to cultivate it. God didn't build into you so that you could bury it deep within the recesses of your heart. Think about how crazy that would have been. He gets more glory when we tell the story of all he's done through us. Way more glory. I mean, and think about it. When it looks like the dream is about to go out, when it looks like the light is going to go dark, doesn't God get more glory? Okay, let's look at it the other way around because none of you answered back. And I said, Jesus was the answer. And you thought that didn't fit, so you stayed silent. But here's what happened. What if you have a lot of money and a lot of athletic ability and a lot of connections and a lot of strings? Let's take acting and a lot of acting ability and all this. And you could bribe your way into Hollywood and get all this and you can get a movie. You go, to God be the glory. Anyone that hears it's going to go, why? You had money. You got ability. You had connections. You, were, you never even mentioned God. I didn't even know you were a Christian. God doesn't get the glory from that. But if you have a dream and you share it, and by the way, when you have a dream at some point, you have to put it out there. Because if you don't say it and you don't put it out there, then God doesn't get the glory because nobody knew you had it. And when it comes true, they can go back and say, you never shared that dream. How do I know that? That's why I share crazy dreams with you people. That's why sometimes you look around and go, why does Pastor Rob always talk about reaching thousands? Because I love when people get saved. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost, he says. So the only thing better than seeing one person saved is two people saved. The only thing better than seeing 10 people saved is 20. And the only thing better than a mere church is a movement. All right, but, but we're just kind of getting started. Can't we just get our feet wet? No, time's up. Time's up. God wants to move big in this city, and he doesn't want to just entertain us, and he doesn't want us to just play church, and he doesn't want us to just give us 5% of his time. He wants to find a group of people that will be sold out to cultivating what God has credited with his church. If we'll cultivate it and move, we'll start to see things happen pretty fast. But if you are unwilling to cultivate all the greatness God has credited to you, he will find someone else who will. I mean, this morning we are going over chapters 37 and 39. Guess what's in between? Mathematicians. 38. You're good. I was going to say Jesus, pastor, but I said 38. Listen, I don't just mean 38. Let me put it this way. You ever notice how jewelers, when you buy a ring, especially guys, you know, hey, our, one of our worship guys, Seth, just got engaged. Can we give him a hand? Yeah. He just got engaged. Now, she doesn't know it yet. But no, she, you told Rachel, right? And she said, she said yes, okay. So, but listen, I'm imagining that they, that they sold this, they suckered the, or sold this ring to Seth by 
presenting it at first on a black velvet background. Well, why do they do that? Because the diamond stands out when you present it in a dark black velvet. I mean, it really pops. If you have a white velvet background and you put it there, people are going to go, where's the diamond? That's a pretty ugly one. Actually, it doesn't look very colorful. It's not that clear. So they present it on purpose like this. And I look at, why is this weird chapter, 38, thrown in there? It's not even about Joseph. It's thrown in there for a reason. It's sandwiched in there between 37, because 37 shows Joseph's piety at home, and 39 shows his position abroad. The sad, sick story of Judah, who I talked about earlier, the perverted brother, is what chapter 38 is about. It serves as a dark background, which highlights the luster and beauty of Joseph's life. That's why it's here. It's a backdrop, and you can see Joseph's life just pop, and the dream just pop against this sick brother of his. I got to move faster. Number two, Joseph had a vital relationship with God. A vital relationship with God. The Lord was with Joseph. This is 39 2, 21 and 23. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So what's happened is they sold him and he goes there and this guy named Potiphar, who's very powerful and very rich, looks at him and apparently he was well built. He was strong. He was good looking. The Bible says this and they maybe tested him academically or whatever and he seemed brilliant. He said, I've got a great deal here and he bought him. Put him in his, in his household, this very wealthy, powerful household. Pretty soon Joseph was running everything. Why? Because God blessed everything he did. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of, of, of the house. Egyptian master. Now, I'm going to skip what happens to him next for next week. We're going to talk about it more next week. But here's what I don't want you to miss. The Lord is with him. Whatever he does, he makes it succeed. You mean when he's got a lot of money and he's real powerful. I know the end of this. No, no, I'm talking about whatever he does. He was thrown in a pit, but he was taken out of the pit and given to slave traders. And I believe those slave traders probably put him at the front because he said, this guy's the best. And then he gets bought by a master, and the master puts him at the front because he said, this guy's the best. And eventually next week, we're going to find out he gets thrown, falsely accused and thrown into prison. So he's back in the valley, but he gets elevated to the, running the whole prison and doesn't have to stay in the stanky, stinky, dirty, disease-ridden cells. Even in prison, he rises to the top of that because the Lord is with him in whatever he does so he can succeed. Why? The Lord didn't bless Joseph so he could eventually become the wolf of Wall Street. He blessed him to become a precursor to the Lamb of Judah. Do you get that? Because we look at it and go, God bless me. I'll become the wolf of Wall Street, which is a sick, degenerate life. Or he blessed Joseph so he could become a picture, a forerunner, a painting, a vivid illustration of the Lamb of Judah, which is far more powerful. Yes, eventually Joseph's dream will make him great, but it will point even greater to the person of Jesus Christ. And if your dream is just about making you great, that's why it's not happening as a believer. God is all about dream alignment. And unless your dream aligns with his kingdom, he's not interested in supporting it. That's why some of you are tearing through Scripture and going, I know the promises. Say anything in my name and he'll give it. I've been praying for a Ferrari. I've been praying for a big house. And I throw Jesus' name in there all the time. It doesn't work. That's your dream. That's not his. His are better. His are better than a piece of metal with four wheels. It's a really nice piece of metal with four wheels, Pastor Rob. His dream's better than that. Better than that. I'll bring you more joy. Here's the final thing. A strong character developed through difficulties. Well, we've seen that obvious, obviously a lot. 
After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. This is what happened in Potiphar's household. Lie with me. He was so attractive that she was, was apparently a, a fallen woman and she wanted him sexually. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house and he's put me in charge of everything and I've done well with it. How could I sin against him? So he stands with God and says, God has given me this dream. I will not sin against God. I will not sin against your husband, my master here in this house. I want to be blessed. And what does he get for it? He gets thrown back into the pit, back into the pit. And it looks like the dream is dead. It's not dead. It's not dead at all. With each new trial, Joseph grew stronger. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, an amazing, amazing life. Incredible man of God in Joseph, Lord. Incredible obstacles, incredible valleys that he went through, Lord. Why didn't he stop? Why do so many of us stop? Lord, thank you that he can be such an illustration to us in our life of of how we can dream again, but not only dream, but see these dreams come fulfilled. Lord, help us to align our dreams with yours. Father, to get excited about what you came to do. Lord, and if we're not, God, help us to confess our sins and line up with you. Let us take this time of communion with you, of coming before your table to remember your great gift to us, not our talents and our abilities, first and foremost, but your death on the cross that we might have life. Help us to praise and to worship you as we remember your blood shed, your body broken. And then God, Give back to us, Lord. Bless us in letting us dream again. Lord, I pray that this would be the church that lives according to its name. Help us to make an impact, a massive mark on this world that people sit back and go, that wasn't a church. That's not a church. That's a movement of God. Lord, help us to not look and see how small we are, but help us to look at ourselves and our church and see how great big you are. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.